cat has like relation to like other objects. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you can't hear that on a, on like just like a static thing. Be an expert on this, or at least like interested. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, so the space is moving so fast that uh, I don't know anyone who can claim they comprehensively know what's going on. Hi, Sonia. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Michael. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on this podcast. You you wrote something, uh, I think, three days ago uh, about what you're currently uh, thinking about. And it was a great inspiration for my questions. First, I think it's better to have some, some kind of overview of like who you are and yeah, what you're currently working on and what do you think is important? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I'm Sonia and I am a graduate student at Vila with four teachers studying multi-agent oral in the context of the brain. Um, I'm also producing things in the Web3 world and am currently founding a company in the space. And finally, I'm a writer. And the piece you're referring to is something that I put out three days ago, synthesizing these interests. And it went into uh, thoughts on AI safety, thoughts on founding in Web3, and how mathematics relates to the mind and how the mind can represent itself. So yes, I'm excited to talk more with you about that and, and get your thoughts. I think for people who don't, um, who haven't read the piece, uh, what I find so cool is that you have like an NFT for the piece or for the <laughs> yeah. project Metaphysic Tycoon. So like there's like, while you're reading the blog, there's, um, yeah, you can see the price of the NFT <laughs> and, uh, you know, invest in Sonia or invest in your future project. I, I don't know, your, your project, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of that was experimenting. So there's a platform called Mirror XYZ that is basically writing like medium or substack links to the Ethereum network so you can easily insert NFTs or like sort of crowdfund through the book. Um, I, I was just sort of experimenting um, with the capacity of what NFTs can do. I think there's a lot of narratives in media that aren't always super flattering. Um, narratives of them being Ponzi schemes or scams, but I'm increasingly seeing that this is like a fundamental technology. So I'm interested in exploring more in this space. I've tried, I've tried selling NFTs from AI art on OpenSea and I was like disappointed by all the like gas fees that you need to pay upfront. Oh, Do you gosh. have to pay gas fees for Mirror XYZ or? Oh gosh, yeah, so this is like lazy minting. So I don't, I think I paid like a one-time fee, but uh, it is on Ethereum, gas fees are still quite bad. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how sustainable this is. Um, and it's sort of like a question I hear a lot of people who are building in the space are talking about like, you sort of like stay on Ethereum and hope that layer two solutions will come soon, or do you start building on Polygon or Solana or one of these more eco-friendly options? Um, that's super cool about your AI or I'd like love to see it sometime. I think it's like my profile picture on Twitter. Um, and there's like a couple of other variations. Were you using GANs? Yeah, I, I think like there, there was a period where people were using VQGAN plus Clip to do a bunch yeah. of art. And then there was, um, Another, I think people were using StyleGAN as well. Um, oh yeah, and then there was like clip guided diffusion, um, um, that was popular. But I don't know what the state of the art is right now. <laughs> um, and I, I think in the crypto world, um, maybe in the past three months or six months, uh, my entire Twitter timeline has been t talking about Web three, um, and you al you also have like a, have a Discord server about a project that is kind of about Web three. So you're kind of maybe an expert on this or at least like interested <laughs> in <it. laughs> Yeah, so the space is moving so fast that uh, 
I don't know anyone who can claim they comprehensively know what's going on. And it, it's the kind of field, you know, it's like moving so fast that like when you read about it, it's going to be outdated in one week. And like right now, I guess like what's currently going on is that in Congress there's like a one through hearing and there might be some sort of like legal direction that comes out of this and some sort of clarity as to like what is considered an asset or a security and what is not considered a security. Um, but in terms of like where, why I was drawn into the space, so I'm very drawn to emerging sectors due to the asymmetric upside risk that you can achieve in them. Um, and this space is, there's a lot of asymmetric upside risk, like there's not much competition, uh, high uncertainty, lots of capital, um, no clear no narrative to direction as to where this is going, but it's clear that something is there. So um, I do have a couple projects in the space, and one of them has recently been ballooning, and uh, we're raising venture funding. So we're operating semi in stealth, but basically, like, just is that I'm just, I'm very interested in the fund, in NFTs in its usable. Like, it can be like a work of art, sure, that's great, but does it have some sort of like technological use behind it that it is that lends itself to things that we do every day today, but for some reason is far more efficient or far more versatile? Um, so I'm happy to talk more about that later, but we are sort of in semi-self, so I'm, <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much just yet. It's not stealth enough to not talk about it, but too much tells to talk openly about all the details on a public podcast. Exactly. I'm, I'm not very familiar with asymmetric uh, upside risk. Can you explain a bit what it is? Right, right. So whenever you do something, there's like, there's an element of risk and you can model the risk as like the distribution. Um, and this is sort of like a psychological model. And you could say the axis of the distribution is uh, how it is a certain value, like how good something is. Like, for example, say I were to go skydiving, like what is the risk profile of skydiving? Well, in my personal opinion, because I don't skydive, I'm sure someone else can say something differently. There's more uh, asymmetric negative risk because I could die. <laughs> and the positive risk is like, I'll have like a euphoric couple hours, but, you, but, but, but that's not good enough. But like in my mind, there's more, there's more negative risk than positive risk. On the other hand, like when it comes to like founding a company in Web3 right now, I view there as being more asymmetric upside. Um, the worst thing that could happen is that the company totally fails and goes bankrupt. And in that case, like, in my opinion, this isn't that bad, uh, at least where I am in life. Like, I don't, it, it wouldn't affect me that much in the long term. Um, and it is something that I can make it recover from, and it is not death. So, and the upside, of course, is that we found something absolutely game-changing that becomes worth, like, billions and billions of dollars, or, or fundamentally changes the way people do something, or relate to something, or conceive of something, so... I, I just view there being more more to gain than more to lose. This is like the more colloquial version. How does that differ from you know Silicon Valley investors? Um, you know when they invest, there's like a lot of upsides, and worst, the worst case scenario is like you lose your reputation, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I, I guess maybe if you if you like have a bunch of funding in Web three and it doesn't work, you also lose some reputation as well. Uh, maybe th there's like less paperwork when doing crypto investing. Um, what, what are the other like upsides? Like maybe people are more um, crazy and risk taking as well. Yeah, I, I found like the culture here. Like it has a reputation of being crazy, but honestly, like I don't find the people in it to be that crazy. I find them to be quite open minded, and it, it, it goes kind of like dot com culture. Like of course, like this has probably been said thousands of times, but there are these parallels to the dot com boom. 
I, I do think the technology is like a little less fundamental than duck hunting, to be totally honest, but it, it is attracting a similar type of people, often who are nerds or like very artistic or uh, very open-minded, but constructive. So like, in, in a lot of other areas of business, things feel kind of like a zero-sum game. Like what Web2 is now, it's like, oh, you're gonna think about your competitors, like investors when you sort of pitch them are going to be a bit more aggressive and skeptical about your idea. Uh, you have to guard your company secrets. Well, here there's more of an abundance culture where if someone else's business is successful, like I'm happy for them because more people are onboarded into the space and that benefits me. So like, it's it's just a different vibe when the sector itself, uh, people question the legitimacy. So you end up forming more tribal bonds with people that you work with, even if they could one day be your competitors, it doesn't really factor into the equation right now. Right, I think um, maybe in um, like, fiat world um, there's like a limited amount of money that can be funded so people are committing for money but like in the kind of crypto world um, the more you know your project works uh, the more value the, the more market cap gets and so like everyone gets rich <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> so it's more like a positive sum game like everyone wants other people to like buy crypto or like um, buy their token or something yeah exactly exactly and, and, and I, I'm not like ext extremely, how do I describe this? I'm, I'm not like an evangelist of, of, of crypto itself. Like it's not, in some ways it's not about crypto. Like the technology can be anything. Um, what interests me more is that like, this is an emerging technology. It could be something. Like we don't know until we like go on the safe pyramid and sort of like search the space, space of what it could be. Um, it could be crypto, it could be something else. Right now it happens to be crypto or like Web3, which is like, more <laughs> palatable rebranding of it as of 2021. So, yeah, I'm super <laughs> excited to see where things go. Um, yeah, what are like um, like the main big projects people are talking about in the space? I've, I've heard of like Filecoin, Gitcoin. Um, I don't know much about it. Filecoin is interesting, sort of like a distributed file storage. Gitcoin is like working on various funding schemes, like quadratic funding. Uh, like liquefy fund, if I take a dollar, it'd be like quadratically matched. Um, there are various DAOs that are very popular, like MikuDAO, like Friends of Benefits. Uh, there are various like NFT clubs, like Board Ape Yacht Club. Like recently, I, I joined a crypto coven that's making these like witches, and it has a feminine vibe, which is more unusual for the crypto space. Um, there are various like literary projects as well that I've been looking at, like experimenting with. Uh, writing various essays or smart contracts where you can add uh, another verse to a poem, but there are various uh, mechanisms in the smart contract to make sure your poem follows certain parameters. Like your poem has to like, your verse has to like rhyme with like the previous verse. So I'm super interested in all this stuff. And I, I think a lot of the stuff we're seeing now is super experimental and artistic, but this is how you find like real industrial use cases, like through this fervent experimentation. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and I think we we haven't talked much about like how is that different from, um, you know, how, how is Web three different from you know just you know Web two plus um, adding a blockchain. One connotation of difference between Web three and Web two is that uh, Web three and, and and the crypto movement of like a couple years ago is that now it's not just about the cryptocurrency, like it's not just about various coins. Um, like around two thousand seventeen, like the ICO or initial coin offering was 
was this big thing and then got a bad reputation uh, due to being used with a lot of scams. But now it seems that so many other use cases have opened up. Use cases that have always been there, um, but I think they're just becoming more memed and known about, so more people are experimenting with them. Plus, the tech is getting more accessible and easier to use. So GUIs are better, knowledge is getting easier to find. Um, DAOs and NFTs have been around for ages, but only now people, I think, are flooding into the space and seeing what they can do. So um, beyond things just being about currency, it's now about like you basically have this universal computer that is the blockchain that is uh, verified. So you can experiment uh, with so many in so many ways. I think like the thing that struck me most is the element of scarcity that's induced by NFTs. If you suddenly make a digital object scarce, it changes the game and it changes how you relate to the project. Anyone who's played like Neopets in 2000 or certain video games in which you ferociously compete over a pixel of like a paintbrush that can paint your Neopet theory color or your in-game theory mode. Um, like this is, this is what an NFT is. And I'm very interested in what happens when you take this technology of scarcity and you apply it to types of information. We're used to information being basically infinite, unless it's by a paywall. But if you add an element of scarcity to the information and the information becomes sort of like a good that you can barter, how does it change the way you relate to the information, both for better and for worse? And of course, I'm interested in cases in which it's better. A lot of applications in video game where people are kind of paid to play. And I think like the main difference was uh, a few years ago is that um, it's, it's more like about building a community and like building a social network, like the, the kind of Facebook, but adding like money. And like you, you build like a bunch of different social networks or or like incentives to add money to like different infrastructures we already have with like Web2. And it's like not clear again if like this is a good idea. Like, is it a good idea to make all your interactions sort of financialized? Like, I'm not, I, I'm not saying this stuff we're doing is a good idea because I don't know yet, but I, I do think it's like worth experimenting over. Um, and like specifically what I'm interested in is sort of rights or like ways to help creators. Like a lot of people are thinking about this, but I have a background in writing. I, in college, I studied writing. I was going to go into publishing in an alternate life. I was a freelance memoirist. Um, and this is sort of like separate from my current career, which is in machine learning. But I was very interested in how uh, publishing houses take a lot of royalties. And smart contracts could potentially be a solution to sort of like undercut or like bypass um, that process and give more royalties directly to writers and directly to authors. So, my current project, the one that's in semi-stealth, is exploring the possibility of like, using the NFTs to sort of benefit these authors. Um, instead of just like gaming for its own sake, even though gaming for its own sake is amazing, art for its own sake is amazing, I can't say no to that. I'm like, is there a way to make this like deeply, deeply, deeply useful to people who are often part of systems that don't entirely benefit them? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's been really beneficial. Like NFTs have been great for uh, digital artists. Uh, people doing music, um, like during the pandemic, everyone could could not like do gallery or uh, selling physical objects. So I think it was a great way for them to be like defunded uh, by doing stuff online. And I think publishing will be uh, if if we can move from um, yeah spending two years uh, writing a book and waiting for the publisher to make money from a physical book <laughs> and, and go from like buying things directly, um, that could be great. Um, I think you, you also um, 
mentioned that there were use cases for um, distributed compute. Um, so people, um, so yeah, there there was a space of of like kind of Filecoin, but like for storage and for um, yeah, having like investing in some GPU and everyone owned a little bit. I'm not sure how this works, but I remember you mentioning it. Right. It, like I have in my mind sort of this romantic narrative of distributed training. And I say romantic narrative because the more I look into it, the more I see that there are various technical challenges that that lot that lie in this narrative. Um, namely due to latency. There are some protocols working on distributed training of GPUs, uh, but none of them in to my knowledge are being actively used. Um, I would love to use distributed training to train like large scale models. So foundational models are currently posed as like a paradigm shift in AI. And training these models in a distributed way in which everyone sort of has some ownership over the foundational model or uh, can give the foundational model the data that needs to be for understanding the quantum compute, uh, then this foundational model becomes like a public good or like a collective good. And that's appealing to me as a narrative. Because these models are like quite powerful and basically acting as utilities. It takes millions of dollars to train one and usually something like three years a year. So that is something that appeals to me. But again, like I don't see the patent being there quite yet. Um, and that's not the extent of my knowledge. In terms of public good, um, when you think about like all the humans writing stuff on the internet on Reddit, uh, all the text we have online that we write on the blogs. Um, and then we have a company like OpenAI training GPT-3 on this like public good or like open source code that then like is fed to OpenAI Codex or GitHub Copilot. And it was, it, it's, it's kind of a weird rule because it's not actually like copy pasting. It's not, um, you know, um, against copyright claims, but it's still like kind of training on something that is ours. So um, yeah, I think we are at the kind of edge of um, how do we, yeah, not tax, but um, yeah, have a share in OpenAI's models uh, because we wrote something on the internet. Absolutely. And the, here's where I think NFTs can actually be a solution to this, or like one of many possible solutions where you sort of have control over your information. Your information is an NFT, and you can put certain protections on that that are encoded in the smart contracts. Um, so maybe like there's some giant database or some giant library, and, and now I'm getting sort of like closer and closer to my startup idea. Um, you have some sort of giant library where everyone can like put their information, and if your information is trained on, then maybe you get incentivized to relinquish or some sort of like money or governance tokens over the whatever is trading on it. Um, so that that's interesting to me. Um, suddenly information is scarce. Suddenly information is verifiable. Suddenly if your information is kind of Turing complete so you can add all these functions to it that manipulate it. Do you like summarize stuff about yourself or stuff that you wrote into like bits of information and then if people want to use it, then they, they kind of use your token or your NFT and then they kind of need to pay for your NFT to use it or how does it work? Yeah, so, so it's not clear. There are various ways to do it, but what I was thinking, what and again, this is sort of speculation, um, to my knowledge, this doesn't exist yet, although there are so many protocols that I'm almost definitely missing something. Say I am a writer and I write like a bunch of novels. And then there's some language model company that wants to train on my models for their system. 
Uh, maybe they want to produce like AI versions of what I write. Maybe they just want my style. Like who knows? I could put, I could turn all my writing into NFTs and I could put it on some sort of marketplace. Um, and every time that my writing is, I can have a sort of API that will like connect my writing to the sort of pipeline that the language model is attached to. And when the language model like trains on my writing, it triggers some sort of function that will immediately send these to my bank account. So, so like my, my my writing is basically like a good that can be paid. Um, that's right. that's one idea. That already exists on your latest blog when you have like an NFT inside the blog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's experimentation. Yeah, I see this like general theme of um, yeah wanting to um, kind of have this digital copy of yourself where. Um, yeah, you, you exist online, and if people want to use uh, to use you, they need to pay something, or like something goes back to you. And yeah, um, I remember in one of our, our last conversations, uh, we talked about um, you know digital copies and digital minds, and you told me that yeah, doing a podcast or like having some uh, being on the web, writing stuff online. Was kind of a way of exist existing um like after death uh having some kind of digital copy of yourself after death i don't know <laughs> it's just too private um, yeah no, no it's a general great. theme of, of wanting to like kind of be existing on the internet or online absolutely so like every emerging technology is accompanied by this like aesthetic this emotional aesthetic this cultural aesthetic and one like emerging technology that's been sort of like going viral for lack of a better word like last year was like longevity or you know designing technologies to extend human lifespan or if you want to code for extremely immortality and i have a bunch of really intelligent friends who are in the space and find it fascinating but there was something that didn't resonate with me something that had to do with like emotional aesthetic and i wonder why and it's because i don't fully relate to my body I, like my body is part of me but i don't identify with it it feels kind of like a randomly generated body in some ways. Um, so it's like, okay, like, what do I resonate with? Like, I resonate with information. I resonate with the information in my mind. I resonate with my writing. I think my writing is way more symbolic of who I am than my physical being. And, of course, like, a lot of people feel the opposite, especially if, like, you're a dancer or if you use your body as this mode of self-expression. But I think what I say is far, far more important. And if I wanted to live forever it would actually be more of a condensed version to sort of like put as much like high quality representative information about me online and have the hope that there's some industrial language model, uh, GPT-3 style that trains on it. And in the future, if someone wants to talk to me, I can be easily regenerated. Now, of course, like I don't, I, I don't think my writing is capturing certain causal mechanisms of how I act. And for that, you would have to, I think, see me in embodied form. I think my embodied form is incredibly important as being the generator of this information and how I relate to my environment. Um, but video can sort of supplement that for now until we get to like VR and more sophisticated systems. So, uh, yeah, all of this is part of the grand scheme to to live forever. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the end game. In your December update, you, you, you wrote something like, "This blog is great to pass knowledge." To my descendants is this something you you, you think about a lot or <laughs> just wrote about like for fun <laughs> no that's a great question i think it's like pretty reminiscent of my entire worldview in many ways like there's a short story by ken Liu who translated the three-body problem into english uh 
and it's one of the first stories of Kubrick and Entry, and he talks about books that various aliens have, and how these books are all slightly different from each other. Like, some aliens have, like, these long proboscises and kind of, like, carve books out into, into the wood, and in order to read the book, you have to put your proboscis into these engravings and sort of, like, follow along, and you end up hearing the voices of the writer uh, in an auditory way, so they, their books have an auditory component where you're listening, literally listening to the voices of the dead. Um, some other aliens, their their brain is the book. Their brain is made of stone, and there's like some sophisticated system where their thoughts turn into water and kind of like engrave these channels in the stone. Um, and you can end up reading this book. You can end up like deciphering these like hard coded stone markings in order to get information. And he sort of goes through these various like alien, like fantasy, sci-fi style uh, instantiations of books. And what is the invariance between all them? What is the common theme? And it's that this is memory for the culture. Books are, are memories. And how do you transfer memories across gener generations? Um, so I, I think I'm like very interested in, in human memory, very interested in books and libraries and information retrieval and ways to query information. Uh, the internet's now our form of memory, but we're sort of in this like in-between phase where we still use books. So working at this intersection between books and the internet has been uh, the projects that I'm working on right now. So like, I'm, I'm very deeply interested. Um, one other sort of like tangent off this is like, uh, after I wrote that update, I uh, picked up a book that my father had written 10 years ago on soil dynamics. It was like civil engineering of soil dynamics. It's like a new uh, thesis. It was a new thesis about uh, the movement of soil in the frame of dynamical systems, and I just started reading it, and I felt like I was reading me. I felt like I was reading like my writing. I, it was just very, very similar. Um, my father passed away a long time ago, so it's not like I was like doing this in a deliberate way. But I'm like, oh wow, like there's certain like memories that are encoded in my brain that are not even episodic anymore. Uh, there are so many memories that you have that I have that are not in episodes. And by episodes, meaning you can remember the actual event. But poetically, they're in your phones, or neuroscientifically, they've been integrated deep into your brain. Um, so this is all interesting. Would you say it's from like it's passed by like because you have the same like it passed some genes to you, or because like he was I don't know like if someone like becomes a writer while you know in this life and then like has a baby, <laughs> does it like impact the way the baby will become a writer? Um, or is it like mostly the environment and like how he raised you? Um. Uh, I, I think it's the latter, a mix of like genes and an environment. Um, uh, memories I have that I can't even episodically remember. Like there's this amazing paper by the researchers at uh, Genelia Research uh, that sort of poses episodic memory as a way to like reduce overfitting of your brain, where your brain is like training your environment, informing some sort of generalization, um, but you can't like generalize everything. So you retain an episodic memory. But that brings up the sort of other question of like, does that mean all my episodic memories are to prevent overfitting and the sort of like very general, like deep memories I've, I've forgotten. But, but, but the memory is still there in the generalization. And I, I think like a lot of like who I am or a lot of like who anyone is, is, is made of like forgotten memories, forgotten episodic memories that have like turned into these generalizations about existence. Hmm. Or yeah, or, or stuff like like when when you're a kid, you end up you know forgetting. Of course, you forget a bunch of your memories, and they end up just like 
in, in some kind of cache neural network um, from in your subconscious. So like imagine you see your father writing a lot, but but then and then it's like it's, it's stuck in your brain. It's some kind of initialization of your ways <laughs> because you're, you're, <laughs> you're a kid. Um, so yeah, you don't really have access to it um, afterwards. You don't have this kind of episodic memory, but you kind of already have it. Right. Right, exactly. And, and like, I guess, like, how does it manifest? Like, does it manifest in, like, the way you behave? Like, when you, when you feel, like, drawn towards certain things and you're not sure why, or certain intuitions, maybe that's all these, like, generalized memories activating. So it's, it, it's fascinating how it works. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah, when talking about episodic memory, I'm, I'm kind of um, thinking about, like, this DQN paper by uh, DeepMind where I guess they introduced the like the episodic memory having like some kind of batch of memory that you can sample from to train your algorithm. Um, and I think it was kind of to improve generalization, like um, sample randomly from a batch of memories from before uh, instead of um, you know doing the updates one by one uh, because otherwise you could uh, you know diverge something and <laughs> I, I don't know how we can relate that to um, our brain, but um, mm. yeah, it, it's it's it, it's fun to see like the kind of um, yeah discussion between like AI and neuroscientists, and I think you're kind of uh, between those two as well. Yeah, definitely. I'd say I'm like right in between the two. So like my lab is called Link Lab, and they look at both the intersections of neuroscience and AI, and we're really lucky to be at Yale. They're they're really good researchers in both. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Like episodic replays, fascinating, like happens in dreams, but also <laughs> I wonder if it happens, like when you just like think about your day, like, like sometimes as soon as I wake up, I'll just like replay in my mind, uh, the day. And that's like a form of like training. You can also create your own training data. Like your, your, your mind is basically like this like VR system where you can just like create your own training data and then train your brain on it. Whether this training data is going to be like predictive to your current environment is like a totally different question. But I think there's a point where you can get your training data that you generate in your own head to be both like quite predictive of your environment and incredibly helpful and filling. And this is why fantasy literature is like very great. <laughs> so you, you, you basically read fantasy to train your brain to think about, you know, great outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is why reading like dystopia or any like like Shark Tank or like The Apprentice or like Survivor or any like the stuff you see on TV is like not a great idea. It's like really gross training data. But if you look at like the backgrounds of like any sort of like famous or notorious founder from like Bezos to, to Musk, they were usually reading sci-fi and like training on it and then sort of like manifesting it into their career in this very intense way. So that's something I want to read more. Like Bezos has read like a lot of like empire scale, like galactic empire scale science fiction that I think is now like playing out in his life. And uh, that's, that's fascinating to me. I can't help but think about those memes where you have like Bezos in the 1990s and Bezos now with like bl uh, black glasses and like everything is floating behind. And the same with like Elon Musk where he didn't have hair with PayPal and now he's like kind of badass with like a leather jacket. Um, and then, and and you and you add the like reading sci-fi and like becoming the sci-fi monster or <laughs> right, you become the thing that you that you read about, um, and, and that's again, yeah, like, that's so funny. Like books are a form of memory. It's like a form of training data, and like 
narratives that we consume become like manifested in our lives. At least mine do. Uh, I'm not sure about others. Again, again, like when you observe yourself too much, like you've got to be careful about making generalizations about other people. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think we can like generalize because it's and and equal too. Like I I share the same feeling. Um, mm. Have you have you tried biographies? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think I, I, I'm a bit weary about biographies because I ended up overfitting on them. Like, as, as soon as I first moved to Silicon Valley, I drove there, and on the drive there, I listened to both like Elon Musk's biography and Bezos' biography, and I sort of like trained my mind on them. But when I actually got to Silicon Valley, I'm like, wait, this is like nothing like the biographies. So, like, the founder experience that I have had and I'm like, currently having is just extremely, extremely different. So, like, on in, in Silicon Valley, there's sort of like this like Musk obsession. I feel like I'm like living in his mind sometimes, and I, I I think it's overtrained on. I think it's too much. I think we need like a larger batch size or just like more more examples. One thing I'm kind of um, you haven't talked about much. Uh, so you said you're, you're at Mila. It's like an intersection of um, neuroscience and AI. Uh, but yeah, what exactly <laughs> do you do day to day? Do you do like more like brain models or AI deep learning? We've been talking about a, a bunch about batches so are you like do you have expertise in neural nets right so like what i'm very interested in is like looking at the brain to see like what the brain is doing in order to improve ai algorithms or like make algorithms more general or mimic general intelligence um i'm very interested in creating human level general intelligence so recently my project has been looking into decentralized rl or multi-agent rl as a model for the brain so like with multi-agent RL, that there's this paper, uh, erosion tool use and auto curricula that came out with OpenAI a few weeks ago, a few sorry, a few years ago, where you see um, you see these like high-risk seekers um, sort of playing adversarially against each other, and from them adversarially playing against each other, you see these emergent behaviors that are very anthropomorphic, so like object recognition, uh, tool use, and I'm interested in applying this to the brain. Can you recursively decompose brain into various subsystems that are both competing and cooperating to produce emergent behavior that's intelligence. Um, it really just depends on where your abstraction barrier is. Like, can you, you can like keep recursively modeling a single agent as composed of sub-agents, which are composed of sub-sub-agents, which are composed of sub-sub-agents, on and on and on. And at what level of abstraction is it useful for the system that you're modeling? So this is sort of like an open question. Like, do we use this process to model um, neurons? Do we use it to model circuits? Do we use it to model more like in a, in a functional sense, like the act of perceiving itself? Um, there was like something along this flavor is like posing the brain as a degenerative adversarial model, where the reality you see is sort of generated by your brain, but it's tested against inputs of like your actual perception. Um, and that is sort of like how your reality arises. And like this has like a multi-agent flavor to it. So this is like a really open research field. Like it doesn't exist right now. Like there is some work on agents, but nothing as applied to the brain. So it's been a blast. It's been fascinating. I spend most of my days like reading papers of, from like various like diverse areas, from like neuroscience to like philosophy of consciousness to uh, more like empirical or like mathematical papers and reinforcement learning to understand how to best frame this question. It's kind of a team between like neurons timing, um, being the same team to like build the best model and against reality. 
Exactly. <laughs> You're constantly being tested against against reality. But yeah, what kind of models uh, are people using for this? Like, is it, um, yeah, one agent per neuron, and then you, you run like a billion agent simulations? <laughs> How does it work? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's st it's still too early uh, for me to have like a clear answer to that. Um, there isn't any literature on applying this to the brain yet, so that's sort of like a new a new starting point. Um, there is this really fascinating paper called the Decentralized RL to model economic agents, um, and basically you uh, have like a, a bunch of agents who all have a certain policy, and their policy, their dominant policy, ends up being the same as like, the globally optimal. Um, in a specific paper. So an example of that for game theory would be the second price auction, where if everyone, like, sort of, if the winner of the auction um, has to pay the second price, ends up in optimal behavior for the agents, where there's, like, least, like, wasted resources, and the agents are building, uh, agents are bidding closest to their true value. So this is one example of, like, well, the societal optimum is the same as, like, the optimum policy for each agent. So this is, like, one starting point. Um, the tricky part I'm at here, I'm currently implementing this paper, is like the, the second price auction is like hand hard coded into the model, and I suspect like <laughs> it'd be cool if it were more supervised, if like the agents had to like learn this policy instead of it being hard coded. So that's the, currently the direction I'm hoping. Like, can we get these agents to learn these policies that result in this behavior, so end up being locally optimal? Right. So. Could we have those natural fixed points that people would like, where the agents would the agents' policies would converge? Uh, because in in the traditional financial thing, uh, it's hard coded, so people will converge because it's something that is in the environment or something. And you're not sure if having neural networks and this very large space, if people will converge to this uh, one function. Is that? Yeah, I, I mean. It might converge to one function. It's just uh, it's it's just like, I haven't seen a paper implemented this yet where it converges to, to something or anything. Um, it it might exist up there, but based off like what I've read, I've not seen it. Everything is in this like, decentralized context so far has been hard-coded. I think you you've worked a bit in um, like the different uh, similarities between vision in the brain, vision in mice, and also like vision in ML. Like do you think it's solved, or do you think there's like more work to be done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. So like originally, like I was interested in this body of research. It was sort of proposed in 2012 by uh, Gammons and Carlo. There was like, this paper called the Pusing Fold Driven Networks to understand the sensory cortex, where you can train like some sort of like CNN on ImageNet and use that neural net as a neural encoding model to predict patterns in the brain. What does this mean? It means that the brain and the neural net are like optimizing, uh, optimizing the computation in, in like a very similar way. So it's like here's like a sort of more tangible evidence that like the neural net is doing something similar to the brain. And now that might sound like kind of obvious, but like for ten years ago, that was like a huge point of controversy where a lot of neuroscientists didn't think that deep learning was that relevant to the brain or like that useful. Um, it was just like fancy polynomial bidding. But I, I, I think it is fancy polynomial bidding, but like our brain is still, still doing it. So that research at the time was very uh, intriguing to me, but it's less intriguing to me now and I've kind of moved away from it. So to sort of like go back to your original question of like vision and the brain, uh, it's that like 
you're only going to get so much similarity between the brain and CNN because the CNN is being trained on these like 2D images. Well, the brain is getting this sort of like really high dimensional representation of a cat. Like you can pick up the cat, you can interact with the cat. Like it's sort of like this RL like interactive context where the cat is in 3D, the cat meows. The cat has a like, relation to like other objects. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you can't hear that on a, on like just like a static thing. And like people try, are people are doing this work. Like my lab is doing this work too. Where like you can train like these neural net on like videos and have videos be more brain like than than images. Um, but I I sort of like became disillusioned because I, I think like looking at the brain like function by function. Like now let's look at. Uh, images. Now let's look at sound. Like now let's look at object flow. Now let's look at like, X, Y, Z. Like I, it seems like too much like phrenology. Like I think everything in the brain is extremely entangled. All the representations are entangled, and like phenomenologically, this would like manifest as, as like synesthesia for a lot of people. But maybe in like less extreme case, like if we look at our, like, the way we write, like we're using all of these like, entangled metaphors to describe our reality. So I'm like, okay, I'm not like interested. I'm, 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 I think it's like, a fascinating area uh, to work in, but in my personal interest, I, I moved away from that where I'm like, how do we train these like very general algorithms? And that's probably on some like simulate high fidelity simulation opposed to just like ImageNet. And once you train this agent on this like high fidelity simulation, then it's going to have these general capacities that are very, very good. Um, I, if you want like superhuman vision, like I don't think you need to do this, but we already have superhuman vision, we already have AI that's like more specialized in humans. But that's it's just like a different, again, it's a different problem. It's like, what are you interested in solving? What are you interested in using this for? So I think people who work in vision would say that superhuman vision would require general intelligence in some sense that um, if you want to detect cats or uh, stop signs in a very general way, you need to kind of interpret a picture where there's like a cat and a dog on top of it. And the cat has like, I don't know, it's broken leg and you need to like, understand a cat in a very general sense that requires more than just like images in some mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. and i think what you said about uh wanting to build general intelligence um is a point of contention because um i don't want to speed up the development of agi yet uh, because mm -hmm. i think it's uh, not safe so but mm -hmm. we'll come later to that um, but something else is that um there was a tweet from andreas kabari the lead of ai at tesla recently um, about Transformers. And what he said is like, <laughs> back in the day, so <laughs> five years ago, um, when there was this deep learning boom in 2015, um, yeah, there was CNN papers about vision, and then there was like RNN papers about language models and other simple neural nets for RL. And now, if you look at RL, um, yeah, NLP and vision, they're all using the same architecture, which is Transformers. So now you can just like, if you understand transformers, you can basically like read everything between vision and LP and RL. And what this kind of means is that maybe we found some kind of general architecture that is more similar to what the brain does in the sense that the brain doesn't have different neurons for different things. They, they, there's like neuroplasticity. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think as you moved away from vision, <laughs> the, the field also moved away and now <laughs> you're using mm. transformers. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm, I'm super excited to see, to see where this goes. And I'm happy to talk more about, uh, you know, AI safety. That's a whole, <laughs> whole rabbit hole for sure.
Yeah, because um, okay, so I think the first time I understood that uh, you were you had a different intuitions about AI safety than um, maybe mainstream uh, AI safety researchers um, was a couple of days ago where you tweeted about um, the orthogonality thesis. So this is like mm -hmm. maybe you can explain shortly what it is for people who don't know about it. Right, right. So orthogonality thesis, so it was originally proposed by Nick Bostrom, whose impact in the AI world is very deeply felt. Um, and he proposed that like intelligence and goal are orthogonal axes. And this means that they're not, that they're independent of each other. You can have an extremely intelligent being that has a very stupid goal. And like the example that he gives is like paper clips. Like you can have like a hyper-intelligent agent who wants to tile the universe with paper clips turn everything into paper clips, kill all the humans to make more paper clips, create giant factories and like staff them with human slaves to create more paper clips to cover the universe with paper clips. And it can come up with all these very elaborate schemes as long as there are more paper clips. And this is sort of like the terrifying example that he presents um, that I think like triggered like this huge like cultural cascade of AI safety. And just as sort of some like background, the right context, like I grew up reading a lot of this like Lachlan stuff, a lot of uh, counterculturalism, a lot of these AI safety papers, um, a lot of like sort of on the edges of like what Mary's doing, um, and was very much like also in the zeitgeist, like oh no, like what if we fuck up very badly and create this very malevolent like paper clip, clip creating super intelligent AI, and. Really, what I'm like slowly realizing, and these intuitions are, are only dawning on me as I speak, so they're a bit speculative, and I would love to hear your counter-arguments, because I could very much well be wrong. I'm like totally okay with being wrong, I don't know, but my intuitions are that a lot of this culture is like non, it's, it's a bit non-functional, not useful, and maybe not even correct. Um, first of all, it's not obvious to me that the orthogonality thesis is correct. It's not obvious to me that goal and intelligence are orthogonal. Um, this is a bit odd to talk about because intelligence is a hot topic of contention and it's defined slightly differently by various researchers. But one sort of like general definition of intelligence or that like a lot of people would abide by is that it's some sort of uh, algorithm or entity that can quickly adapt to like different environments and perform well on multiple different environments. Um, that, that's one. That's one definition. And really like. Goal selection is a critical part of this type of intelligence. Like picking your goal is a part of how smart you are. And again, this is a bit, this is not yet well framed because uh, even saying that there are some, some goals are better than others, it's implying some sort of objective. That's implying that there is sort of like a meta goal that you aspire to, there's some sort of like meta reward function. But I don't want to get bogged down in that just yet because I, I, I don't think that's enough to deter. As like a very human example, I've had like very stupid goals throughout my life that I later realized were stupid once I got more information from my environment. In high school, I was very obsessed with like getting grades because in my like local environment, that was like obviously the best thing to do or to like advance in the world. And when I got more information, I'm like, wow, like it, this actually doesn't even like matter that much in the long term. It's probably long term better to do something else. Uh, my goal shifts. My goal changes. So I often wonder if goals like. And again, this is speculative, but I'm sort of thinking as I speak, but I'm very struck by the idea that goal selection is critical to intelligence and maybe even critical to capacity. Um, and I want to explore this. I want to understand it.
because I think the current momentum of the AI safety world is not has not yet deeply entertained this idea. Um, I wonder if creating human general intelligence is actually one of the most safe things we could do in the space of AI. Currently, we have all these like very we already have dangerous AI. We have very dangerous AI that cannot deal with distributional shift, that doesn't understand the concept of like bias uh, and will like make intense decisions about people's lives um, based on like very racist. We have a bunch of like very racist algorithms out there, and you can argue that the algorithm, the racist algorithms we have, are not super intelligent. And that a super intelligent algorithm would not be making these mistakes. It would have more information. It would have better tools, and it would just be way smarter. Um, there's another sort of like cultural or, or like sort of like language. Like the language we use to talk about these things is so forbidden. And we keep talking about like super intelligent like agents, or, or like as if like the AI is like this like agent out there that like has choices and like makes decisions. But when you like study reinforcement learning, you can see that there are like various mathematical framings on like the same phenomena. Like you can model RL as an agent interacting with the environment, or you can model the whole process as this like dynamic system with a steady state. And that's like a very non-human modeling the same phenomena. So I often wonder if like there are certain like steady states in these like intelligent systems that we craft that have these sort of like local um have, have these sort of like a uh what am I phrasing? There are these systems, these dynamical systems that have steady states. And one of the steady states might look like human general intelligence. And this human general intelligence might actually um, I'm interested in potentially creating this human level general intelligence and then very slowly iterating on it to improve it. Um, I don't think humans are, are that dangerous. Uh, or, like, like in comparison to like this apocalyptic super intelligence set that we described. I, I'm also not saying to sort of like hastily experiment with AI and not think about what we're doing and like not fear this like Bostrom style apocalyptic intelligence that's not what I'm saying either I think we should be careful but I think it's created a lot of weird cultural vibes in certain communities that are like not necessary and actually instill a lot of doomsayness and and uh and, and oddness yeah you've been talking about aesthetic and why the AI safety current aesthetic is not what you want and you would prefer maybe a different narrative um and I, I kind of see where you're coming from. And yeah, maybe there was like a different way of framing it that was easier to understand or less, um, yeah, would instill less fear to people. Um, however, like for the, all the things about, yeah, intelligence and goals and how those could be in, like tied together, um, I think it's like mostly a game of definitions and if you it like in in his book when he presents the orthogonality thesis, he kind of defines intelligence, defines goals, and then he's like, oh yeah, those can be arbitrarily uh, like you, you you can be like everywhere on this like two D graph, right? Um, and you're essentially saying like, oh no, but like actually intelligence, if you define it in some other way, most people would say is like being able to like adapt and. Uh, as I was growing up, I adapted from you know wanting grades to like I don't know doing having a positive impact or uh, writing books, and so I would guess that like an AI becoming smarter would be like myself. <laughs> this is like a very <laughs> yeah uh, I don't know uh, a very narrow representation of what you said, um, but I I kind of hear what you what you're saying, um, but somehow so kind of my intuition for that is that we're um, our kind of utility function comes from revolution, and uh, maybe 
the one that was optimizing for grades was kind of overfitting for education. And then when you, I don't know, talk to um, Silicon Valley investors or artists, then you kind of had different, more different goals that were still um, kind of sub goals from optimizing um, genetic fitness. But um, there, there, for me, there's still like some kind of utility function behind, right? Uh, that we optimize for. And when we build our, uh, yeah, our neural nets, there's like a loss. Um, and I think it's, it's hard for me to think of, um, yeah, an AI that doesn't have some kind of objective function or that cannot be represented as something that optimizes something um, like an, an objective like function or a loss. Um, and, in, and if you're optimizing for something, um, then you can be good or bad, as you said. And yeah, the good or bad is not to be able to generalize to any kind of environments. It's more like, like you measure if something is good or bad as with that criteria, with some kind of loss, right? There, there's no like objectively good or bad. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's why, like that's my intuition of, of like why it's true. Um, <laughs> I don't know if, if, if you, I agree with this or if there's some disagreement. Yeah, yeah, so you said a bunch of interesting things. The first thing is like, this is a game of semantics. Intelligence is like, I just redefine intelligence. So of course it's wrong. A little bit, a little bit. And, and like, I see what you're saying. And uh, there's sort of two things here. Like, like one, like what are the connotations of the words we use? And like two, is this just a game of semantics or is there something deeper here? Um, as for the first one, I think by calling the second axis, the first axis being goal, the second being intelligence. Intelligence is a lot of connotations, and this is making people fear, uh, this is making people have strange definitions of what intelligence means, and what should be intelligent, should be considered intelligent, and what shouldn't be. And this plays into like deeper narratives of like fearing AI. While like, on the other hand, if we instead use the word capacity, and, and I know a lot of people who use capacity in the bug analogy thesis, maybe that's, would make you fear AI less and think more about how to build it, opposed to like AI itself being inherently inherently a narrative to like slow down or to like not think. Um, so this is like operating in semantics territory. But going even deeper, I often wonder like beyond definitions if there's some mathematical framing in spaces of intelligence that gives rise to certain steady states, some of which are stable and some of which are unstable. And I, I think what people are fearing are these stable states in intelligence space that are like deeply dangerous to humans or like wipe everyone out. Um, but I often wonder if in the long run, uh, what is sort of a Darwinian view, what perpetuates itself will keep doing so, and what won't perpetuate itself won't. So if eventually, on like some like universe scale, if you take like time steps out, out to infinity, there's going to be a deeply self-sustaining intelligence that arises. Um, maybe we'll fuck it up this generation, and yes, it's something to be worried about, but if there is some sort of like steady state in intelligence space, that's absolutely glorious, and it's not quite human, it's more complex than humans, and that's something that we can aim for. So are you saying that if you have something very good at making paperclips, it will like create a beautiful civilization with spaceships to like create all those paperclips? Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for people who disagree with this, uh, there's this game called Paperclip Maximizer. Uh, it's a web game, and you end up like building a civilization, and um, 
doing a bunch of cool stuff just to make paper clips. It's a good, it's, it's a cool game. Cool. <laughs> I'll <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very smart, it's a very fun game. So yeah, I kind of agree with you on that. Um, still, I kind of want, I would prefer the goal to be something where humans stay alive and um, yeah, maybe there is more to life than paperclips. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe these paperclips will like start turning existential in order, maybe in order to make better paperclips, the machine turns existential because that ends up being a generally useful function in exploring this environment and making more paperclips. And this like function can like somehow like, rewrite its, its, its optimizer. Um, like it might be that the system gets so complex. Like, like I wonder, uh, I wonder what is and isn't mathematically possible, basically. Um, and I, I hesitate to be deeply terrified about this like potential paperclip empire when I'm not yet convinced that it's mathematically possible. But I want to think more about it. Right. So yeah, what what we're saying is that you can rewrite yourself and like kind of change your goals. Um, and I think as humans, um, imagine you have this desire to write more books or like write beautiful books. Um, and you realize that, I don't know, humans crave uh, a, a bad motivation. So you can like teach yourself um, to like, I don't know, not desire, um, you know, sex or money. And you'd be like, oh yeah, I need to like only crave beautiful books. So you can like rewrite your own code in some way because you, you see stuff from your evolutionary past that you don't like. And I think an AI that wants to optimize paperclips might want to rewire, rewrite its own code, but the end goal is still to make paperclips, right? Here, <laughs> um, here are things like stop making sense to me. Like if something has so much capacity, uh, would it not interrogate? Or would not its goal like turn unstable in certain ways? Uh, like that system that can like, this paperclip making system that can constantly rewrite itself to make more paperclips sounds very unstable. What if the whole thing like goes, it goes chaotic? What if the goal itself go, goes chaotic? Um, and I'm speaking a bit vaguely here. I'm not speaking in intensely technical terms because it, it is an intuition. Um, like for example, like, yeah, we were, we can rewrite ourselves, but we as humans were sort of like, if we had an objective function, it might be to uh, keep existing and procreate. But a lot of people override this objective function. And now I'm not speaking in mathematics, so I'm speaking in like just observing behavior. I'm not sure what the mathematics look like. Like, I don't know, but there's a sense that we're not thinking about this in, in a way that, that's fully coherent to me. So I think, yeah, I think what, what, what this means is that there's no, there's no like clear way of defining surviving and there's no clear way of defining um, paperclips. So if you, if you have something uh, like maybe like a thousand years ago, surviving meant uh, hunting and um, you know um, having sex and having kids. So, uh, but now it's different, right? So now now in your in our current environment, we don't need to hunt and and do all the things. So our brain is is like in a different um, environment that we're trained on. Um, so I think if we train we 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 put in, in our last function like oh yeah. You need to, you know, produce more paperclips, and paperclips are stuff that look like this. And if you touch them, they like feel like this. And you put this algorithm like very uh, deep in galaxies, in different galaxies. It, it might not be able to like find those original paperclips. So it might like I don't know, create something else, something very different, right? Um, mm. Something that's like similar. It uses the same like machinery, but it's 
completely different environment, so it ends up sort of like generalizing and like doing something with the same like structure of making paper clips. But maybe here it's like planting a bunch of trees or something, but it's using like yeah, the same, yeah, or, or 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 maybe like I don't know, um, stimulates um, some part of um, computers that you know produce some pixels by you know triggering different atoms that you know will create those images very fast and so it, it will seem like there's like a bunch of paper clips um right right the transfer yeah. the transfer is imperfect uh that's interesting um but then the goal um the question is um so i don't think there's like a perfect goal to optimize um and it's, it's very hard to write in a function um yeah, please optimize for human happiness, or please optimize for you know beautiful civilization. Um, but w one thing I know for sure is that um, it look it, it looks like if humans stay alive and participate in this like n you know new civilization or like new empire, um, for me it would make more sense than just like having some AI doing stuff and then like humans dying. Uh, that's like my kind of action <laughs> and so i would still try to have this kind of to write in the loss function that you know um keep those humans alive or like maybe those humans are important um mm. do, yeah do, do, it, it's interesting because it's not clear that, that there is like one like the idea of writing a loss function is interesting right because it implies we know what we're optimizing for and to be honest like i have no idea what I'm optimizing for, other than to like compress information. So you you can make the loss function do something like SimClear, just like structure, like like find structure in the environment. Um, and maybe if you're an agent, like find structure in the environment and perpetuate yourself. Like that's all. Um, perpetuate yourself or perpetuate your information. It doesn't even have to be your genes at this point. I, I think genes are like very like last millennia. Like it's like perpetuate uh, the information you can generate. Um, so like find structure perpetuate information and, and that might be all like that might be that might be enough and then we have all these sort of like uh more temporal loss functions like if in order to do that i'm going to like eat poop or i'm going to like see right. meat or i'm going to like write a book um so are you essentially saying that um for you uh, spreading information um like in the universe like spreading like human information or, or whatever is kind of a good um, is it like a better objective than like surviving or keeping humans alive because um, staying alive will be some kind of instrumental goal in, in spreading information? Um, yeah, better is an interesting word. I'm, I'm not sure. It's sort of like a philosophical word too. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, trying to stay amoral here. It's more like if there's a complex system with certain properties, like what state does it converge to? And if you model like human civilization, like the entire world as being like this complex system that's like computing something and it's going on some uncertain trajectory, like what is it converging to? Like it's creating AI. Like the AI is probably like going to have a very important role in whatever comes next. Like so, like where opposed to like, like what is like best to do, I, I'm trying to think of like what is like most likely to happen. Um, and it seems that systems that perpetuate themselves are going to, it's just tautological systems that perpetuate themselves are going to perpetuate themselves and I I can't help but wonder if everything that we call beauty and humanity and emotions are all just the best optimizations for perpetuation 
in order to see the most high dimensional information, we have to look at art. Like the best human artists are compressing information in the most glorious, like intensely structured ways. Um, I'm, so, I'm sort of like jumping between frames here. I'm jumping from like this very like materialistic, like let's be objective, let's see where this is this converging frame to this like how does this relate to human nature and like where we are now. And then there's the third thing, which is like how, what should we do? Assuming we add agency, which is like a psychological concept to like this complex system, like what should we do? Can we direct the system? And this is like the system speaking to itself, which is like very tricky and strange. So I'm super curious what you, what you make of all of this. Yeah, I think agency is essentially necessary for everything that is moving. So if you have something that does act in the world, it needs to like choose its action or, or maybe it's like a random agent, but if it's not a random agent, it needs to like kind of choose the next action and have some kind of agency uh, or goal. Um, as for like beauty, I totally agree. Like um, artists are kind of compressing some very high dimensional emotion into uh, some digital art or book. And um, I think this is about compression, right? So it's, it's about like uh, being, so I, I cannot communicate to you uh, all my internal states. Um, so in, in, in order to do that, I need to like compress it. And if, if, if my compression is beautiful, I can send you like a picture that will make you like think about some like very deep concept, right? So I guess like artists are good in like producing like very good compression that can be decompressed and 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 produce like very uh, high fidelity emotions. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, as for um, yeah, what is like the most natural thing that will happen anyway? So I think that's the concept of convergent instrumental goal. Uh, again, I think it's by Bostrom, but no, I think it was maybe by Omondro, uh, Steve Omondro before. And I think it's in the Bostrom's books for intelligence. So essentially, probably maybe you know about it, but like surviving is a convergent instrumental goal, meaning that any goal that we have, we will still want to survive to do it. Um, so yeah, making paper clips, I still want to survive. Uh, spreading information, I still want to survive. Otherwise, I cannot spread information. Uh, there are other ones. I think having resources is kind of useful. <laughs> uh, it's hard to spread into the universe if you're like only one atom and um i think yeah about like information i think the more there's like a more um yeah pragmatic definition of intelligence which is the ability to compress information uh this is in mark uh marcus uther's challenge where you need to um compress wikipedia and um i think you might need to write a language so you you, you might need to like write this the stuff that they compress and um so essentially what you do is like you compress wikipedia and then you like have a program that decompress the kind of zip file to wikipedia so if if wikipedia goes from like i don't know a uh, hundred gigabytes to uh 100 megabytes and then you're able to like decompress it to like wikipedia you, you've kind of underst understood um yeah all the not all the information but like a bunch of information in Wikipedia, and it's like if you had something very intelligent, it could be it would be able to like write those laws of nature in maybe like ten megabytes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, maybe that's like a, a more useful definition of intelligence for you. Mm. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. That, that's that's quite useful. 
um, it, it's interesting to sort of extrapolate along that, where it's like, okay, say you are, you're basically you, like you're basically Stone Michael, but like you can just, your ability to compress information is like far better on, better, like maybe faster, maybe you can store more structure. It's like, how do you start behaving is sort of interesting. Or, or like, like, what does intelligence like compress more information look like? How does it, how does it operate? Um, do you mean like, how do I, how do I, why do I act? Why do you act? No, no, <laughs> sorry. Um, Are you saying like, how do you go from someone who can compress information to like some, some agent that has goals and, and those, does things? What, was that what you're, what you're saying? Oh, it's more like sort of using this paradigm to um, sort of understand what something that's more intelligent than us might feel like or, or look like. Like if it, it's information compression abilities are like better uh, in certain ways. Like I, I often wonder how my memory would be different, for example, like if I would maybe store like less, if I wouldn't need episodic memory uh, in quite the same way. So we, so we don't store that much knowledge in our brain anymore. So we don't have books in our brain that we learn uh, for years because we know that we can go to Google and, and get the information. So if, if there's something that like we can predict will happen and we have like rules of physics that we know we, we can derive things and get the information, we don't need to store all this information in our brain, right? So I guess the what something more smarter than us would be able to do is just like have more general models that um, you know can predict more things. And if you can predict more things, um, then you don't need to like write all those edge cases or like uh, hard code those variables. You can just like say like, oh yeah, I can just rederive if, if, if I need it. So I think, yeah, I guess one of my uh, personal favorite models of what something is intelligent is uh, the ability to predict the next uh, symbol in a, in a series of symbols. So if I give you like a random um, string of character and then I say like, oh yeah, what's the next one? Um, like the, the, a, good, a good AI would be able to like write this kind of series of characters as like generated by a kind of Turing machine and it would like produce a, like a very small Turing machine that can produce this whole thing. So if it's like A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, if it was just like think like, oh yeah, it's just like a, something that does <laughs> A and B. <laughs> and if you think about like an AI that is uh, in the world and as a stream of input as like one and zeros and images, um, and you say like, oh yeah, what's the next frame? Uh, will the cat meow or woof? <laughs> and it's, it's able to like predict things. Um, I think like a very general way of saying like, this thing is smart is because it's able to like predict perfectly the next frames because it has the most general laws of physics. Hmm. It's interesting, like this idea of prediction, because like a lot of these like models that are highly predictive tend to not interact with their environment. Uh, for instance, like GPT-3, like once it's trained, it's, it's done. Like it's not being continuously modified by its environment because it's feedback loop unless you keep training it. So it's interesting to conceive of like this sort of like uber GPT-3 or this very general GPT-3 that can predict every frame of everything that's ever going to happen. Um, it's this amazing like predictive machine um, versus like something that's actually interacting with its environment in a feedback loop. And I, I think these types of intelligences are quite distinct from each other? I think that's um, one argument um, I saw recently was that uh, the evidence from having those NLP models like GPT-3 
um, being scalable and, and leading to more uh, to higher and higher levels of intelligence uh, was kind of a good sign, was a good news because um, if we expected that intelligence required like interaction with the environment, uh, then we would need to like have robots like building like hitting humans or like <laughs> killing people before they become smart uh, because trial and error. But the fact that we can like just like train GPT three on the internet and have like very good performance uh, means that we could maybe like build some AI that you know thinks like humans without ever like interacting with us without having this like goal thing. So we could just like have something we train it and then we predict we have some kind of oracle that we can use. Um, so yeah, it, it makes me kind of optimistic that uh, you know we mm. don't we don't like we don't we, we don't need RL to build. Uh, intelligence for now. Hmm, interesting, interesting. That's I, I, I'm skeptical, but I, but but intrigued and, and open minded. Like I would think in order to understand, like uh, GPT three ends up like making no sense if you ask it like certain like logic questions or if you ask it. Uh, I, I can't remember. It's like how many eyes are in the sky or how many like stockings are on the table or, or something that just doesn't make sense. It, it'll try to give you like a coherent answer. So suggesting that it hasn't interacted with the environment or suggesting that, do you think that the training data just isn't expressive enough and that's why it's doing this? Right, so yeah, sorry. Um, what, what I was saying was not that, um, yeah, I, I'm not like that confident that you could, um, you know, just use exactly the same architecture and, 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 and had like some images and it would be like able to like grab objects and like interact with the real world. That's like very complex and I'm very uncertain about this. Um, so I guess the argument is mostly like we could have something that manipulates symbols and maybe does math and like proves theorems about AI safety and does like all the like important things and without it being dangerous. Um, so th then there's like some disagreement between people. Um, so I think there's like the kind of Yudkowsky side. Um, there's like a conversation between Yudkowsky and Richard NGO on that front recently on this. Uh, where the Yuskowski side is like, um, yeah, if you if you want to like prove theorems and like be very good at math, then that means that you're like kind of pretty smart, and and the, and the kind of like intelligence that is required to do math and like prove very hardcore problems is kind of um, could be used to like I don't know take over the world and and do very dangerous things, and then there's more like the kind of Richard NGO side, uh, which is like oh but why why do you like why do you need to like have this dangerous intelligence why could you not just build some kind of gp3 with math and proof theorems and and without having those dangerous properties um mm. so i don't i don't know where i fall um but i'm i'm kind of confident that you could do build something that does math um yeah i'm not exactly sure like what is doing math right because if you're doing math is like it's just like oh yeah do you have the theorem uh, do those logic steps and and prove it, then you're not actually doing math. You're just like proving theorems. Doing math requires like having this kind of human doing science that wants to do something and <laughs> wants to solve a problem. <laughs> and if you're doing science, you're essentially like um, showing work for your peers, um, trying to like in interpret reality. And and if you if you have like reality and and like perception in 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 the mix then you end up um, kind of interacting with the world. Um, hmm, I see. So, so is the core distinction here like 
the first one like doesn't interact with the world. Like it just forms like a structured model of the world, and then yeah. kind of like passively sits there and will like interact with you with like the queries and API. Well, the second one is like actively interacting with the world and listening back to it. Exactly. So essentially, the yeah, if you if you're like in a feedback loop and you like do things and you receive a reward or like some feedback and then you, your your training is exchanged because of you know the environment doing things. Um, so that that's one thing, and the other thing is like you just like be, you're just like trained once. So if you have like GPT three trained on the internet, that's very safe, right? But as long as as um, you have something that depends on the real world, so if if the um, so like GPT three cannot change human, but it, it, if it could like essentially like change its predictions so that humans would produce like more uh, predictable text, then his job will be like easier because mm -hmm. if humans become predictable and write like very predictable things on on, on reddit uh then his, his next training will be very easy and if you like have, have a very good loss so i guess like the distinction is between like um if you're yeah on a feedback loop and and, and you can like do things in the multi multiple steps then um you, you tend to like modify the environment or modify your inputs uh in some sense mm. processing. I, I have this like intuition that some of the stuff we're talking about is is biased by semantics. Like like the idea of agents, the idea of loss functions being hard coded. Um but I, I will I, I will dwell on that for a bit more. Um I'm interested in seeing these systems from the lens of like dynamical systems um with steady states that do or don't converge. Uh, I'm not sure if this is going to be helpful um but it might make me less biased. I think um, without talking about semantics or or like very uh, theoretical arguments, your your problems was also like this cultural shift, and you have like diff like what would have been like a, a better framing of AI safety or like a better um, yeah way of 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 coining those terms that will lead to like a better culture because I think I think last time we spoke you had a spicy takes on on. Um, on, on the culture and 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 uh, how that could be changed. Um, do you want to talk about about that? Yeah, of course. So I I'm not reacting to AI safety at its core principle, but more its current instantiation of it. And I would like AI safety to become very ideologically diverse. Uh, I think right now it's too small. Where it, it's sort of circling around. It seems in my mind like circling around like a couple of key figures and. It would be very nice if AI safety were, there were like 10,000 different AI safeties, all with slightly different views that formed the same project. So I think I found the current paradigm of AI safety to not deeply look at human behavior. Um, again, like one models that humans are just a tiny space, so like the giant mind space of like what could exist. Like, yes, I understand that, get that. But at the same time, I do think humans are a steady state in intelligent space, and that's not, it's not a coincidence. And there are certain properties of humans that are very safe that we can look at, where we can safely develop humans by uh, safely develop intelligence by studying by studying humans. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is sort of like everything surrounding AI safety. Like as with any movement regarding an idea, there's 
all the culture and connotations of around the idea. And currently, AISATs feels cut off from a lot of the rest of the academic community. Um, and like we hear people, we talk about like safety, fault tolerance of software from the 1990s. Like a lot of these ideas are being redefined. So I often wonder um, if there could be some model or like strain of AI safety that's very integrated with like financial applications, that's very integrated with like international relations or like the US government. Um, and it attracts people who are also attracted to those things, thereby attracting a different personality type and thereby like sort of shifting the research into a different direction. Like I'm not saying that instantiation is right either, but it'd be great to see like a thousand different instantiations. Yeah, I remember you saying that um, you would prefer, yeah, instead of having like researchers thinking about virtual things, people talking more about investors or being more in those kind of startup environments where there's more uh, a pressure from uh, investment. And, um, and I think, yeah, the vibe I get from you is that, um, yeah, you, you, you think that by default, if you if you're kind of interacting with some kind of um, economic system, then you might get like more useful feedback and then some kind of in, yeah interaction between ideas and investments. So you're mm -hmm. you're kind of very optimistic about like this interaction, and and and, and I think my kind of counter argument to all of this is that um, yeah you, you you said that there were like a um, a few like key players. I disagree. Like this was a key like ten years ago. Um, but now, like, there are, like, maybe 20 to, like, 40 different organizations working on this, uh, maybe smaller ones, and they have, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> maybe it's not very diverse, maybe it's mostly in Oxford and Silicon Valley, um, but, yeah, I think there was, like, um, some studies of, like, if you take, like, MIT, Stanford, um, Berkeley, uh, or, like, the top, top 10 universities in the US, they all have like some kind of small AI safety department. Um, maybe it's not called like, oh yeah, um, paperclips, <laughs> but they're like kind of working on this. And you, you were mentioning like bias and you were mentioning um, different like cases of AI more like narrow, narrow term. And I think those communities grew a lot as well. Um, maybe we only know about like the key, the key players because you know, the world is so vast, we don't know anything, all the players, but I think it exists. And yeah, about like money and investments, um, I think there's like a bunch of money being thrown at it. And I think like, um, if, you, if you look at like OpenAI or DeepMind, or um, even like you mentioned Miri, or um, now there's like Redwood Research and Ott, and like a, a bunch of those companies were either startup or um, nonprofit that have a bunch of funding. So I think there's money, maybe not enough, but there's like investors, there's, the Silicon Valley vibe. Um, so I, I don't think it's only like one dude writing about paperclips in his room <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, like conceptions of, of diversity, I think are, are relative and your framing of the AI safety world makes it seem much more diverse than, uh, than other framings. Um, I, I think I'm still not, I'm still not satisfied, perhaps because maybe it feels too fragmented. Maybe I have not found sort of tenor that resonates yet um and perhaps something new can can be created but yeah thank you I, i'm curious more to hear more about your takes on ai safety if you've talked about this on a previous podcast if you have some blog posts if your ideas are out there but it seems like you have uh, sort of
put in this email for you. I would love to know what it is. Sure. Um, yeah. This podcast is mostly about you. Uh, <laughs> I have other episodes where I, I say other things, but um, I heard you were launching a, a podcast um, at some point. Um, maybe this is fake news, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah, maybe if you if you ever build a podcast, I might talk about it. Oh, sure, um, that'd be great. <laughs> um, hmm, maybe. So I, I think we've kind of talked about uh, a bunch of different topics, and um, I I wanted to wrap it up with kind of a conclusion from you. Um, so I'm going to ask very Lex Friedman questions because he has those like very deep philosophical questions at in every podcast. So what's the meaning of life according to you? <laughs> oh, um, that question doesn't make sense to me. The question's not well-framed. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't will think- be, It will be on a tweet. I will just like coin, I will just like, Sonia Joseph thinks the meaning of life is X. So it's not well-framed. The meaning of life is not well-framed. Like the concept of meaning itself is like a very human concept that's acting as sort of like this experiential, Tag, like gooey on top of some like complex system steady state so i don't know the steady state like, like whatever's going to perpetuate itself will uh i don't think there is a meaning so maybe it's like very a very existentialist sort of materialist answer but in terms of like a very personal like what is like my meaning like what is like my goal like what motivates me i would just say it's like biologically encoded for what this drives i i'm just very uh uh, pushed to seek some sort of transcendence of like the human condition or some sort of like collective transcendence. And there's a sense that there's way more complexity out there, that there are intelligences that are so complex that we cannot even fathom. And I, instead of fearing them, which a lot of people do, perhaps rightfully, I want to like access them, I want to build them, and I want to create them, and I want to do it safely. And I want to like construct movements in which we can create these intelligences like very safely. This is, yeah, a great conclusion. Um... Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the show. It was great having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was lovely.